Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. And you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. I am so excited to bring you this episode with Michael Lewis about his latest book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. This is extremely timely because Sam Bankman-Fried is on trial right now about this book, about what he did, and you're just going to have to listen to this episode. There's stuff that Michael Lewis told me that he hadn't told anyone before, and I am just so excited to bring this to you. This is his second time on the podcast, and I will be releasing, you'll see there's a visual component to it, so I'm going to release that on social as well. Anyway, here's more about Michael Lewis. Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. Michael Lewis has published many New York Times bestselling books on various subjects. His most recent books, aside from Going Infinite, are The Premonition, The Fifth Risk, The Undoing Project, Flash Boys, The Big Short 
short, and The Blind Side. Before that, he wrote Moneyball, a book ostensibly about baseball, but also about the way markets value people. Both of his books about sports became movies nominated for Academy Awards, as did his book about the 2008 financial crisis, The Big Short. His other works include Boomerang, the new new thing about Silicon Valley during the internet boom, Coach, about the transformative powers of his own high school baseball coach, Losers, about the 1996 presidential campaign, and Liar's Poker, a Wall Street story based in part on his own experience working as a bond salesman for Solomon Brothers. Mr. Lewis is a columnist for Bloomberg View and a contributing writer to Audible. His articles have also appeared in Vanity Fair, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Gourmet, Slate, Sports Illustrated, Foreign Affairs, and Poetry Magazine. He has served as editor and columnist for the British weekly The Spectator and as senior editor and campaign correspondent for The New Republic. He has filmed and narrated short pieces for ABC TV's Nightline, created and presented a four-part documentary on the social consequences of the internet for the British Broadcasting Corporation, and recorded stories for the American public radio show This American Life. Mr. Lewis grew up in New Orleans and remains deeply interested and involved in the city. He holds a bachelor's degree in art history from Princeton and a master's degree in economics from the London School of Economics. He lives in Berkeley, California with his wife, Tabitha Sorin, and their children. In 2009, he published Home Game, an accidental guide to fatherhood about his attempts to raise them. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your latest book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. It's a pleasure to be here (laughs) again. I have to say, I know that we had pushed the time a smidge because of your appearance on CBS this morning. And I was at my doctor this morning trying to download the app so I could watch you. And I watched CBS on my phone for like an hour, but it didn't work. I don't know what happened. Maybe I watched an old show. Anyway, I tried. (laughs) Well... I mean, that's, you didn't miss anything. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I love—I really actually love those hosts. Uh, they're great. But the six-minute format for this story is really hard. 60 Minutes did almost half an hour last night, and that, that just started to scratch the surface. I mean, what they left on the cutting room floor, can I give you an example? Yes, well, I know we're, All right, so you're holding the book. If you take the jacket off the book and look on the inside of the jacket, You'll find one of many little puzzles in the book. Oh my gosh. I'm so mad at myself that I didn't notice that. All right. So what you're looking at is something that both the bankruptcy people who are running the FTX bankruptcy, and the book is about Sam Bankman Freed and FTX and the collapse of this crypto exchange. He's going on trial tomorrow. Neither, I think, I'm pretty sure, the prosecutors, I mean, the bankruptcy people told me there's no organization chart for this organization. We don't even know the names of the many of the employees because they kept no records. And I'm presuming the prosecutors don't know about this either. But what you have in, the, in your hand is the one known organization chart for FTX. And it was it was created on the slide, unbeknownst even to the CEO, by Sam Bankman-Fried's personal therapist and, and corporate psychiatrist to FTX. Who was in the Bahamas, and he had a hundred employees who were reporting, who were coming to him because they were unhappy about one thing or the other, and he realized he could not counsel them unless he knew what the organization looked like. So he started to pick their brains about who reported to who and who was where on the organization, who had what title, and you've got four hundred and fifty-three people there lay, laid out beautifully by the corporate shrink, and and this is all to my point that. That thing is probably admissible as evidence in the trial tomorrow. It's probably useful to everybody, including the readers of the book. And 60 Minutes, who I unveiled it to, 
didn't even have space in a half hour piece to get to it. And it just ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh my gosh. So you were the first person on air. Oh my gosh. To to reveal this thing. (laughs) It's just amazing how kind of dense the story is. So anyway, I'm pleased to have a little time with you. And sorry if I jumped ahead here a little bit. But no, I'm I, delighted. I've been waiting for someone to go look at that thing because I am I went to great pains to print it on the. It's like I think of it as like you know the family trees and Tolstoy yes, novels totally. or the, or the kings and Shakespeare's yes. plays. That's what it is. That's what you're looking at. Oh my gosh! Did you think about putting it somewhere else? <laughs> it was always on I, the inside. It was. It wasn't my idea. It was the publisher's idea. It was a brilliant idea. Because my main character, Sam Bankman Frieden, yep. as a child, he has no connection to other human beings except in except for one instance. And that's when he starts designing puzzles for other mm-hmm. people to solve, like yep. puzzle hunts on the Stanford campus. He loves his relationship with the people around him. He's most comfortable with is he creates the puzzle and you try to solve it. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted the reader to have some feel of solving a puzzle as they're going through a book. The puzzle is, is him. Yes. Like this sort of puts you, this supposed to put you in the mood. It's wow. sort of fluffer. Well, I'm I'm impressed and delighted because this is the coolest thing I've seen on a jacket cover. Ever. I love it. Yeah, I love it, and I, I and I love it that when you're reading the book, there there you know there are half a dozen or eight eight other really important characters besides Sam who are kind of drawn, and you can find them there and figure figure out how where they're situated, and yeah. even the little people who kind of come and go, you can find them there. And I, I'm kind of tickled because they're 453 or whatever people who worked at FTX, many of whom nobody knows their names. And now they're all laid out. Oh, my so gosh. they can show their grandchildren. The, yeah. the, here, here it is. And the <laughs> psychiatrist, his name is George Lerner. He's, I, I came to adore him. He's a curious character. The psychiatrist is off basically hiding in Vietnam because he doesn't have anything to do with the trial. And he gave it only to me. And did not let anybody else know that he created it. So the, the CEO, Sam, does not know that thing exists. I never told him. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm sorry. It's, I, I'm getting don't too excited. Don't be sorry. It's amazing. I'm getting, too excited. I'm getting too excited about my own jacket cover. I, I it's don't. Probably, it's unseemly in an author. It's not at all. It's totally expected and wonderful. By the way, even just the fact that the company has a psychiatrist, you should just, that is like the flag, red flag waving at all like what kind of company and it sounded well, like the two of you and sam were you know the only ones left standing at the end so not only did the company have a psychiatrist and not only was the he the personal therapist to the ceo he was the personal therapist to the ceo's girlfriend who ran the side of the company that collapsed <laughs> and who wasn't speaking to the ceo so the therapist in a funny way was the only line of communication between the two most important people in this drama. It's great. I mean, I, you know, I often have gotten been handed material that are, is kind of God's gift to nonfiction narrative writers. I've been in my career unbelievably lucky in the stuff I've kind of wandered into. And the feeling that I love to have is I'm only limited by my powers. Like it's not the material that's stopping me from doing something great. It's me. <laughs> that's it. That I, I, I'm stretched as, and I had that feeling with this one. I've had it before, but I had it in spades with this one. It was like, oh, like Shakespeare would have. This material was worthy of Shakespeare. Uh, that Shakespeare would have probably he would have done things with it that I I have not imagined. But I, you could see in the material just the world, and it just kept on giving little things like that. Anyway. 
So I, I feel like I've started this thing by monologuing. I will shut up and you can now you can now interrogate me. I don't want to interrogate you. I want okay. to just have a co- regular conversation. Okay. But I don't think interrogation is fun for either person. I don't know. I think conversation <laughs> is a lot more fun. I mean, personally. And you also, you know, so you also get more out of people. Yeah. If I mean, not, if, they're not, if they're not defensive. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, right. Yeah. I found it really interesting how you started the book with a really deep dive into Sam's childhood and what he's like. And I don't know, you never referenced if you felt like he was on the spectrum or if there was any sort of diagnosis, but you did a very clear picture of somebody who relied on things like, or who didn't really care about other people's feelings, essentially, and kind of beat to his own drummer. And even though he was so brilliant in some ways, just like lacked the ability or desire to like read facial expressions or things like that, that other people kind of take for granted. And then you set it up for how his, his life kind of unfolds by us getting to know what he was like and his relationship with friends and just some of the deficits in his personality that end up becoming hugely sort of significant later when he's trying to interact with the company. So when you were doing this deep dive into childhood, like, were you surprised? Is this what you expected him to be like? And I know there wasn't that much information as everybody was like, I don't he doesn't even remember. So what was that like? So the first thing is, let me just amend something you just said. Okay, amend it. He never had trouble reading other people's expressions. He had okay. trouble, he, he himself had no expressions that he had to learn with a mirror when he was, you know, kind of in college, how to, how to smile, how to, how to read, how to respond with facial expressions so that other people could read him. The problem was always other people's ability to read him, him, his ability to signal other people, his interest or disinterest or whatever. And so, so the first thing about his childhood that was instantly striking, and this is after I had spent months kind of roaming around his company, I started to go, I started to wonder like, what was this person like when he was 10 years old? Mm-hmm. And I said, just give me a list of everybody who knew you and had, could say something about you before the age of 18. He said they were his parents and nobody else. And I said, how, you know, how could that be? You, you went to school with people for all those years. You, you had someone write you college references, presumably. You, some, you, you, you must've had some interaction. And he said, slim pickets. So I did a couple things with him. I actually made him drive around the scenes of his childhood. We went to his old schools. We went to his home, we drove around just to see if they triggered any associations. Pretty much zip. But eventually elicited one person who he had formed an attachment to of sorts. And it was a person with whom he competed in a game called Magic the Gathering. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a delightfully com- complex strategic card game. And... This person, the name was Matt Nass, went on to be a builder of games, a creator of Sam's favorite video game called Storybook Brawl. It's Matt, Matt clearly, as I got to know him, his chief quality, the important attribute that he had that allowed him to even be in Sam's life was he made zero emotional demands on Sam. It was just, they just sat and played. And even now when they're together, they just never, they don't say anything. Uh, it's, there's no, so it was, I was dealing with a character who was, given that he grew up with two parents who were socially very outgoing, on professors at the, at the Stanford Law School, center of a kind of social world at Stanford, widely loved and admired by their colleagues, hosts of parties all the time. In spite of all this, he was really isolated and, and went through his childhood feeling basically not understood by anybody. And went through his childhood a bit like a Martian. 
that, you know, he was learning that his parents were unusual people. They were, I guess you'd loosely describe them as utilitarians. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a, they weren't religious. They weren't tribal in any real way. They didn't go to football games. They were, but they had this view that they lived their lives to maximize the, the benefits of the pleasure and minimize the suffering of others. They did think that way. And he, he sort of absorbs this from them, but they don't really, they don't put him through it. They realize at a quite young age that he's so different, that there's no point in trying to parent him like a child, like a normal child. His mother said that she, when he was little, she took him to an amusement park and like they're, they're going <laughs> for the rides and she senses as they're going from ride to ride, that he's looking at her, like he's not expressing himself in any way. And, he, and she looks down and he says, mom, are you having fun yet? And she, and she, she, she said, I was busted. It was sort of like he wasn't, it, I was here for me, not him. He didn't want to be there. And then she also said that she wrote these very complicated kind of journal articles you know, about, about law and philosophy. And she ran one of these by him when he was like a kid, like mm-hmm. 10, 11 years old. And he started asking her questions that she said were more pointed and better questions than her peers did when she was peer reviewed. And she just, they just threw up their hands and said, we don't know what to do with this. And I can tell you that their colleagues, their friends, always thought that the parents were both a little, very afraid for Sam. They didn't mm-hmm. know what was going to happen to him in the world mm-hmm. and a little afraid of him because he was so detached. And so that's the ch- challenge. I, I mean, but, he, but I, it makes it sound a little grimmer than it was because when he talks about it, like what the world looked like through his eyes mm-hmm. when he's eight. It's quite funny. Like at eight years, he says that when he was eight, he's at school and the kids are talking about Santa Claus. <laughs> I love that. And part. this is every December. It's December. And, he, and his friend, there's this kid in the class named Henry. And Henry says that Santa's bringing him some presents. And it dawns on Sam that the kids actually believe that Santa exists. And he had heard of Santa. It was like a thing. It was like the, it was like, <laughs> Bugs Bunny, you know, his character, a cartoon character, it had never dawned on him because no one ever told him that kids are believe that Santa is real. And he went and basically locked himself in the room and thought about this for 24 hours. Saying, it blew his mind. What does it say about human beings? He said he knows the whole story now that there are these elves in the North Pole and this guy gets on a sled <laughs> and he drops presents down chimneys. And it, it obviously obviously preposterous like <laughs> no way this actually happens but everybody believes it and he says he just like screwed up his his whole view of humanity started to shift and he has a similar sort of response when he finds out that even grown-ups believe in god yes. like he thinks how could anybody do that and so which you said in the character and this continues on into adulthood when he starts right, colliding with things like the financial system <laughs> he's looking at it almost like a martian like mm-hmm. he has none of the received notions and he's just thinking for himself about it. And when you do that, life looks comical. Yes. And so, so his childhood, as sad as it is, when you think about it in a certain way, is funny when you listen to it through his eyes. Yeah. And maybe another way to put it is it is sad, but he's not sad. Mm-hmm. You know, it, right. He doesn't, you don't feel sad when you're listening to him talk about it. Do you feel, well, do you feel, you feel curious? Like this is a very interesting Martian. Right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So then it can't be sad. I mean, if he doesn't think it's sad, then it was for him. It was fine. Yes. Yeah. I think that's and, right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I just love that. It, it doesn't make any sense. Most, a lot of the things we believe, but it's true. I'm like, you know, recently I had to tell my kids that the tooth fairy didn't, and I made the huge mistake of doing this. Like, you monster. Our, you I told know. them the tooth <laughs> On the way to like a, on a huge trip, we were taking like all the way to like Massachusetts or something at the beginning of the trip. It was so, it was a really bad parenting move. But anyway, I, I don't know how it came up, but they kept begging me to tell them. Finally, I was like, okay, fine. No, it's not real. And I'm like, how, do you, like, how would the tooth fairy be getting in our apartment anyway? Do you know, like, well, like they're such <laughs> smart kids. Why would they believe about it? security? Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm like, what, Sam the doorman is letting up the tooth fairy? And like, yeah. what? And, and who who breaks into a place to leave stuff rather than take it? Yeah, exactly. Right? Nobody wakes Anybody's up. Anybody's going to bother to break in is not going to leave you money. They're going to take something from you. Yeah, exactly. And how does this, how does he know where everybody is? Because they'd ask that too. They're like, well, sometimes, like once I was in Mexico. And, they, and I'm like, yeah, how would he know? How would the tooth fairy know? <laughs> anyway. It, it is it is crazy what we can believe. Yeah, I didn't ask that. I didn't ask that about tooth fairy. I think the tooth fairy might have been one too many things for him to internalize when he was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he never had to deal with a tooth fairy. I should have asked him. Yeah, next time. <laughs> but you know, but he did say that there was you did write that there was only the one time that he got upset and that was when he got very depressed because he was so bored. Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting you pull that out. His mother came home when he was like in the sixth grade and found him crying in his bedroom. And that she never that never happened. Yeah. She didn't have get that kind of emotional response. And he just said, I'm so bored. And what had happened was, in retrospect, he'd been put in a kind of average public school and never identified as having any particular intellectual gifts. He'd been a kind of average student. I mean, good enough, but not. And the truth was, he just wasn't paying. He was so bored by what was coming out of people's mouths that his mind was elsewhere always. And he had demonstrated at that point clear some clear mathematical ability. So they, with some other parents, muscled the school into creating a sophisticated math program for the kids that was just extra layered on like at six in the morning or seven in the morning. And he woke up. He was just 
wildly interested in it. I mean, it changed his it changed his life. That all of a sudden he found something, and that at that point he was identified as kind of gifted, uh, kind of smarter than most kids. And and at that point he kind of excelled. From that point on, he kind of excelled in school, even while being kind of cantankerous about it. I mean, he he, he, he always had. He had no problem with math and science, but when you got him in in the humanities, he said, as he said, the minute like English class That's right. ceased to be about can you read a book to what is your subjective view of this book? He thought it was all preposterous. Like, mm-hmm. why is one opinion better than another opinion? Okay, you like it or you don't like it. But like some involved interpretation of this thing, why is that one more valid than the other? And he does things that are, I mean, again, funny, outrageous for a kid making arguments to his high school English teacher that Shakespeare isn't a good writer, <laughs> but statistically based arguments. The point is that like, okay, you say this dude is the greatest writer in the history of the English language. In, in England, when he was, the, the, the population of, of literate English people in England when he was born was minuscule in relation to the population of the planet that has been literate in English. What's the likelihood, the statistical likelihood that the greatest writer came out of that tiny population? <laughs> he said, he sort but it's, so he's audacious in his. This is what this is what I found audacious about his childhood. He's audacious in one being such a Martian, but insisting on his Martian views even when everyone around him would disagree with him. But it, it, he he didn't mind. He got. I think he got so used to being isolated mm-hmm. and comfortable with it. There wasn't anything to take away from it. Like I'm already alone. Like you're not going to take away your friendship. I don't have it. You're not going to take away your tribe. I don't have a tribe. Yeah. So he was always sitting there alone, and it left him in a, a curious relation to the rest of the world. Well, then you have fast forward to today, and you know I didn't mean to say he's all blown that. up the world. Yes, <laughs> that's true. So we fast. I mean, it's a it's a long and torturous journey to where we get to today. But I want to say, let me say, I want to say something about the story I've just written. I've found that the books, my books, when they're the most alive. They leave a hole for the reader to walk into and exercise some role in the story. Hmm. They leave some space for the readers, for a, like a book club. A book club of eight people will come, if I, my book is good, will come together and they will have radically different views about the book, they, about what it means, about what they think about it. They don't want to all think the same thing. I didn't muscle them all into some space. And this story presented me with a wonderful hole to create. This young man he's now 31, is going on trial tomorrow uh, in the Southern District of Manhattan. He stands to spend the rest of his life in jail if he's convicted. Uh, he probably won't, but maybe. I mean, the sentence could be as long as 120 years. Oh, my gosh. For having, for, well, we'll get to what it is, but but for having defrauded the customers of his crypto exchange. And in that courtroom, there are going to be two stories that are told. The defense is going to tell one story and the prosecutor is going to tell another story. They're going to be unbelievably selective about the facts, unbelievably selective about who they let on the witness stand. Both sides are going to leave out lots and lots of interesting things. Neither story is going to be exactly true. I was in this very privileged position of having watched this thing for a year on the way up before anybody had any sense there was anything wrong with it. And then having established relations with all the principals so that I was able to also interrogate them afterwards, which neither of the lawyers could do. You know, one side can talk to Sam and the other side can talk to everybody else and craft a story that is got to be a better story than either of the stories that are going to be told in the in the courtroom. And I'm presenting it to the reader 
and as if the reader is a juror. Like I'm mm-hmm. leaving it to you to decide both how to think about it, like whether you think he's guilty or innocent, but and whatever you think in that, about that, how you feel about that. And as a writing exercise, it was totally fun to do this. Like it was, it was a really interesting exercise to do this. And then I had, I right at the beginning, I thought like what I have is I have an unusual access to information. What uh, like unique access to information? I have a unique access to the story. If I just tell the story and leave it to the reader, mm-hmm. the reader ends up in the jury box, and I, I just find that I find the idea of it really cool. And that it's on coming on top of the actual trial. It's an interesting exercise. I mean, you you couldn't have gotten better timing for a book release. Well, the timing is not accidental. I mean, I, I knew <laughs> I could have it finished by like mid August, and then the publisher could decide when to bring it out. Yeah, and. I started writing in January. It usually takes me about six months to write a book. The timing was like the timing. It was a question of when, if they were going to move up the trial or postpone the trial. I, it was kind of odd that they, I kind of thought they were going to postpone it, but they did. And well, this is the funny thing they did. It was supposed to, the trial was originally supposed to start today, October 2nd. And the judge, for some personal reasons, moved it to tomorrow, which is exactly the pub date. I, so, I, so I, maybe he wants it on the pub date. I, yeah. <laughs> so maybe no matter where we brought the book out, he was going to put his trial on top of it. <laughs> this guy, he's shameless. This judge, just trying to maximize my book sales. <laughs> uh, well, I have to say, what you did so well, which you always do, of course, but it's really just give us a portrait of someone who maybe we don't feel like we understand completely, or who, if we interacted with, or if I was, you know, Anna Wintour on that Zoom, I would have been offended by, or, you know, who, but you really like, explain it so much so that you know even his the PR woman I can't remember her name was Natalie. like I, I can't hold anything against him this is just right. him yeah. which is I felt the same way every I didn't say I did not have a conversation with him when he wasn't also shuffling a deck of cards and playing a video game and he had this it wasn't he didn't mean it to be rude honestly didn't mean it to be rude it was almost medically necessary is it what it felt like yeah. it felt like being angry for someone for someone being in a wheelchair Right. Uh, that, that it felt that way. It felt his mind, for better or worse, needs to be preoccupied. It needs to be occupied in two places at once. It needs some other reality to be in, in addition to this reality, in order to function in this reality. And he himself, possibly wrongly, but he himself thought that. He himself thought, I'm much better when there are two things going on at once rather than one thing. Now, there's all this research that shows multitasking does not work. Mm-hmm. And the origins of this research, this is odd. This isn't even in the book, but the origins of this work, research that begins on the Stanford campus with a professor, a genius of a professor named Cliff Nass, who is the father of Matt Nass, Sam's no childhood gas way. <laughs> and I left that, I don't know, you know, that I just never came into the story, but yes, that research start. And Sam is like maybe a textbook case about of why that's true. He seems so highly functioning when he's got half his mind on the problem. But you wonder if it actually had his whole mind on the problem, if maybe $10 billion wouldn't have ended up in the wrong place. And so it's uh, the multitasking thing. It, 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 seems, it comes across at first blush as annoying. Like, why are you, why are you shuffling cards while we're playing? And you realize he just can't, he can't help it. Like you just, and if you just let him make him feel comfortable, you make it signal to him that you don't mind. You get the best of him, uh, you, you know. If you if you if you were if you know show irritation, 
he, he realizes that it's this is something wrong. So he was, you know, I watched him on live television shows playing video games. Yeah. You know, who does that? I can barely <laughs> hold it together all when I'm all there. You know, it's like a bundle of nerves and you're worried where you're going to make an ass of yourself and you're playing a video game. That was just normal for me. Do you believe in this 30 under 30 curse? Have you heard about this? Like there's I a, haven't. There's a, like two of the people have been in prison or arrested, <laughs> died. And that like, if you're on this list, I think it's the Forbes, for, whatever the one you were talking about in the book, the Fortune it was a, he, Well, he was on a, he was on the Forbes actual just main oh, risk, rich the, list. Yeah. And they, they was also the richest person in the world under 30. Yeah. No, this is the, thir- I think the Forbes. 30, yeah, there's another one. It's like yeah. 30 most influential people under yeah. 30 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all, like, something bad is happening to all of them. Maybe really? to make older people feel better. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure that if we sat and thought for two seconds, we could dream up theories about this. But I mean, this was his story. People who people who think of that this is a story of like simple fraud miss the joys of the story, or and the interest of the story. He actually was worth twenty two and a half billion dollars. It wasn't just like oh, he stole some money and it seemed like he was worth twenty two and a half. He was actually worth twenty two and a half billion dollars. Having started with basically zero eight years earlier or seven years earlier with the ambition to make as much money as he could to give it away. Mm-hmm. How many people, I mean, just think about how odd that, I mean, when you start, when you start to make money in order to give it away, already an, an, imp- an unpromising beginning in a, in a sense, right? Like you're just going to get tired of it. You're gonna, you're not, but to actually have it happen. And in fact, when he, he really goes from zero to 22 and a half billion in about 22 months, that, that the speed with which this money gets made, it's head spinning. So if the 30 under 30 has a thing, it's, it, it, what may be going on there is just the leaps that are happening in people's lives so fast at that mm-hmm. age, which like didn't really happen in human history like this. The Forbes said it's the fastest anybody's ever made this kind of money mm-hmm. as far as they know ever. Yep. That, that's got to be disorienting, right? I like the yeah. theory. Yep. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, that's one thought. That is one thought. I have so many more questions, but now like we're out of time already. <laughs> but that's all right. We don't want to bore our people. We just we want to let them bore know our people. That, so that now they is. will be enticed to find the whole rest of the story, which I intentionally sort of left out some of the more financial concepts because I was getting to the second half and I was like, okay. You left I'm going to focus on talking about the first half, which I can speak about more clearly. <laughs> And we, le- we left out the whole love affair, which is a natural And yes, of, of course. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, yeah. so much more in there. So much more in there. Congratulations. This is so exciting. Thank you for showing me the inside. I'm going to post about it tomorrow. Anyway, congratulations. All right, it's always so yeah. fun. Good to see you again. You too. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.